Welcome to the Life Christian Church Podcast, where our mission is to inspire people to the life God dreams for them as we spread His love in ever-widening circles. If we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, I hope that you're enjoying your time here. I hope to have an opportunity to meet you before the day is over. I'm uh, celebrating with all of you Martin Luther King Day uh, and this whole weekend and of course particularly tomorrow and I'm thrilled that here at the Life Christian Church we're honoring his legacy with a day of service. I hope that that many of you will be able to be involved in that uh, very, very meaningful time. So uh, we're all familiar with the expression carpe diem. Carpe diem is best translated, seize the day. I like the sound of that very much, seize the day. I want to be clear, however, about what that means for us. What does it mean to seize the day? So first, just a little history. Carpe diem expresses a philosophy that has been central to prosperous societies or to those who were prosperous in particular societies that promotes the experience of pleasure as the highest good. This philosophy was popularized by the Roman poet Horace all the way back in 23 BC with his poem, To Seize the Day. In this poem, he counsels his listeners to live for the moment and extract the pleasure from life because life, he says, is going quickly. He wrote, life ebbs even as I speak, so seize each day and grant the next no credit. This sentiment appeared in ancient Greek literature as well and intersects with the teachings of the Greek philosopher Epicurus, whose philosophy came to be known, of course, as Epicureanism. The Epicureans believed that the experience of pleasure and avoidance of pain was the primary good of life. They weren't necessarily bad people. They, they weren't like the hedonists, for instance, who chased pleasure and, and, and sensuality outside of any moral strictures. That really wasn't how the Epicureans thought about their philosophy or thought about life. They, they were just people who wanted to feel good and not be bothered and live nice, simple lives. The so-called gods, small g, that the Epicureans worshipped were, according to their philosophy, happy and carefree and totally undisturbed. Important word for today's message totally undisturbed by the human condition. The Epicureans then, mimicking the deity they worshipped, were intended to be happy and carefree and undisturbed by the condition of the world around them as well. They didn't believe in an afterlife, and therefore they believed that the purpose of life is present pleasure and no more, and that you need to get pleasure while the getting is good. So Paul actually addressed the Epicureans, the Epicurean philosophy in his writing to the Corinthians when he said, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. 
Paul is in the process of making an argument in 1 Corinthians 15 where he is saying essentially that if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, which he had been, then there is no resurrection, and that if there is no resurrection, there is no age to come, no eternal life. And if there's no eternal life, we might as well throw in with the Epicureans and just eat and drink because tomorrow we'll die, it'll all be over anyway, Carpe diem, seize the pleasure out of life while you can. Squeeze the pleasure out of each and every day. The American poet, some 2,000 years after this, wrote his own poem entitled Carpe Diem, where he kind of captures this whole idea. He has a character named Age counseling two young children to, quote, be happy, be happy, 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 and seize the day of pleasure. So here's the deal. I always thought carpe diem was about doing something great with your life. I remember seeing uh, the uh, movie uh, Dead Poets Society. Uh, Who was the actor in Dead Poets Society? Robin, Robin Williams. Actually, someone told me that after the first service, and I already, my memory isn't so hot. Anyway, where Robin Williams makes this speech and he talks about carpe diem, I remember being moved by that. But the problem is I didn't really understand what, what it meant. You know, that if, 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 the fact is if carpe diem means just to pursue pleasure and avoid pain, then I'm not interested. Why? Why do I say that? Because it's impossible to experience true pleasure if pleasure is disconnected from purpose. So if we can redefine carpe diem to mean seize the purpose out of life, which is what I thought it actually meant, instead of just get up every day and go after pleasure, then I'm in. Because this, seizing the purpose out of life, gets to the very meaning of life itself. So last week we launched The Lord bless you, 28 days of blessing. And we focused last Sunday in our our readings, our devotional readings this week from the book, The Lord Bless You, on how much God wants to bless us. I think that we have to start there by getting in our mind a view of God that's a proper view of God, which is that God is a happy God and he invites us to share in his happiness and that he wants to do good in us and to us and through us. So we focused on that the last seven days. But today we we need to take the next step. And the next step is to go a little further today and in this coming week's readings and focus on how we cannot live in God's full blessing if we are not living a life of purpose. To be blessed is not just about feeling good. It is not getting up every day and saying, my goal today is to be happy, 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 happy. Now, last week I talked about how God is happy and wants us to be happy, and I hold to that. I just want to talk about the difference between some shallow, superficial, in fact, false happiness and the deep sense of well-being that comes with being in relationship with God who wants to bless us and who, when he created us, purposed us and how that we cannot know the blessing he wanted for us unless we discover and live out the purpose he assigned to us. 
So let's go all the way back to the beginning, kind of the text for this this whole thing. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 28. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. Last week's topic. God blessed them and said to them, let's move further, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Last week we talked about how that uh, all of Scripture is a response to what happens in the first three chapters of Genesis. Really all of human history is a response to what happens in the first three chapters of Genesis. Because in the Genesis narrative we learn things that God wanted us to know about himself and uh, about how that he uh, created humanity and why and so on. Here, here are a couple of things that are very important then in that early Genesis narrative. First of all, that God wanted to bless the people he had made. And I'll just remind you that the definition we're using of blessing is that to be blessed means to be in harmonious relationship with God who wants to do good in us, to us, and through us. We dug into that last week. But that leads us now again to this second thing we need to know about what God wanted for people, the people he made in the beginning. And that is that he blessed them and then he immediately purposed them. And you cannot disconnect God's blessing from God's purpose. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. God had something that he wanted them to do. He had some things he wanted them to do. He wanted these first human beings to partner with him in his work. These people who were created in God's image were to multiply the God image throughout the earth. They were to take what they had in the Garden of Eden, God's presence, unashamed relationships, abundance, beauty, and more, and fill the earth with it. They were to establish God's rule everywhere on this planet and govern the created world under his authority. In short, they were to partner with God in an intimate relationship with him and partner with him to do his work. Blessing was not just about the good God wanted to do in them and to them, but also the good he wanted to do with them and through them. So again, blessing is inextricably connected to purpose. It is impossible to be truly blessed unless we are doing what God made us to do, what God purposed us to do. And this wasn't just true for the first man and woman. It's also true for us. Remember, very important, God has not changed his mind about why he created humanity. Adam and Eve were blessed in the context of purpose, and so are we. See, when we believed in Jesus, we were born again and reconciled to God and restored to our purpose. A lot of people forget the second part of that. They have this sense that when we come into a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, that we've been reconnected to God in terms of relationship. But they seem to forget or miss that we also are restored by God to our purpose. When we are saved, we are saved to do what we were made to do. 
It's all about getting us back to what God wanted for humanity in the beginning. God didn't change his mind about what he wanted. He still wants the same thing today that he wanted when he created and designed and purposed Adam and Eve. And it's the same thing that he wants forever in the age to come. It's a common an absolute, consistent thought in the mind of God. This is why you look at a passage of Scripture like Ephesians chapter 2, which says, God saved you by His grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. We are God's masterpiece. He has, notice these words, guys, created us anew in Christ Jesus. Why? So we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. When we are born again, we become new creations who do what? What the first creations were to do in the beginning. We were created anew so we can do the things God planned for us to do long ago. So, to be blessed is not just about experiencing pleasure and avoiding pain and having nice things and living a nice little life. It's about living a life of meaning. It's about the deep sense of holistic satisfaction we experience when we know we are doing what we were made to do. The philosopher and professor Jacob Needleman captured this in a simple statement. He wrote, we are born for meaning, not pleasure, unless it is pleasure steeped in meaning. So, carpe diem, redefined, seize the purpose out of each day, and then you will know true pleasure. But I'll tell you, if you get up every day and your primary goal is to seize pleasure, you're going to miss pleasure and never come close to purpose. But if you get up every day saying, why did God made me? What is my assignment in this world? What is the role I'm supposed to play? How am I partnering with God in his work? You will know purpose and you will know a deep abiding sense of well-being that will extend from now into forever. So, Let's talk for a little bit about three ways then to seize the purpose out of life. Three ways to seize the purpose out of life. So great to see all of you on this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend. You never know if anybody's going to show up on a holiday weekend. and There are at least two or three of you here today, and I'm really pleased by that. All right, three ways to seize the purpose out of life. Now, guys, here at TLCC, I think that you know, if I'm, if I'm teaching kind of based on a book that I've written, that the book was written based on a teaching that I gave. And so if it sounds like I say some things that are kind of, um, I guess, classic to my common teaching, the fact is I am. Uh, I'm coming back to some big ideas that I think are incredibly important to all of life, and uh, I'm hoping to offer them to you in new ways. And um, so I also know there are pastors and churches around the country who are preaching these sermons during these 28 days, and uh, that those folks have never heard any of this stuff. So uh, anyway, here's the first thing. You've heard me say this before, but I'll try to say it differently today. You have to embrace the adventure. 
You have to embrace the adventure. Here is uh, an illustration that I've overused, but I've overused it because truthfully, I cannot find a better way to frame this. The opening scene of The Hobbit has Gandalf going to Bilbo, who's living a nice, comfortable life, and inviting him to an adventure. And this is the scene from The Hobbit, in case you forgot it. Can I help you? That remains to be seen. I'm looking for someone to share in an adventure. An adventure? Now, I don't imagine anyone west of Bree would have much interest in adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things. Make you late for dinner. Good morning. I love it. Gandalf shows up. I'm inviting you to an adventure. Bilbo wants nothing of it. Why? Because it'll disturb his nice little pleasurable life and, God forbid, make him late for dinner. See, I believe that God calls each of us. He knocks on our door. And for some of you, today might be the first day that you really feel that knocking. And he calls us to join him in the great adventure he has planned. And I believe that in order for us to receive his full blessing, we must say yes to his call, regardless how disruptive to our nice lives that call may be. I have a picture in my head of God in the beginning, thrilled with the world he had created and the people he had made, standing there and blessing them. I imagine God standing in the garden, passionately declaring his unconditional love to them, telling them how much he valued them, swearing to do good to them. And then he invited them to join him in his ongoing creative activity in the planet. He wanted to do good with them and through them. He intentionally had not finished everything in creation because he wanted to finish it with people. He didn't need people, but he wanted people. He wanted Adam and Eve. He wants Adam and Eve's children. It's like uh, my son Caleb. Uh, when he was, uh, I don't know, three years old, four years old, he, he wanted to hang out with me all the time. And um, thankfully now in his uh, early 30s, he still wants to hang out with me, so it's a nice thing. But nonetheless, he, he, he wanted to cut the grass with me, wanted to mow the lawn. And so uh, he was so insistent around this that we went and got him a little play lawnmower. He called it his Momo. And you can see a bad uh, extract from an a old family video behind you. Uh, I'd, I'd push my lawnmower and cut the grass, and he'd follow along behind. It probably wasn't really even all that safe with his Momo, as he called it, and he thought he was call it, cutting the grass. And the fact is, I didn't need him to help me cut the grass, but I wanted him. You, you know, it, it made the experience so much better and took it on a whole other level. I don't know why, but God could have done everything he wanted to do on this planet without us, but instead he creates people and invites us in. He invites us to be a part of what he's doing in the world. It's interesting, guys, 
when, and he gives us meaningful work. Caleb's Momo didn't cut the grass, but we actually do things that matter. So it's a fascinating thing. To Caleb, it was a great adventure. And when we join God in what he's doing, it is an adventure for us as well. Um, when you study the idea of creation in Genesis, it's fascinating. It's a very nuanced word and a very interesting concept in the original Hebrew language. And uh, one of the things that's interesting is that the word create is kind of an open-ended thing, meaning that if you, if you were to talk in the, in the Hebrew language about making something, it would have to do with a one-time act. It's something that's done. It, and, and when it's done, it's done. It's over. But to create meant an ongoing process. And see, this is really important. God, when he created the world, invited humanity into that process to continue his creative activity in the world. Remember, Eden, the garden in Eden was the only cultivated place in the planet. They were to procreate, multiply the image of God in which they were created to the entire planet and spread what they had in Eden to the entire planet. God wanted human beings to do that. He could have, you know, said Shazam or something like that and it all happened, but he decided to leave it unfinished because he wanted us pushing our little Momo, but doing it in a meaningful way, in a way that mattered. I love what Darrow Miller wrote. He's, he wrote, God has given us the unfathomable privilege of being co-creators with him. Man, made in God's image, is given the awesome task of bringing forth all the potential of creation. God's image stamped on us allows us to move beyond the physical reality we see daily. We can dream of a better world and then begin to make it happen. Where there is darkness, we can create a light bulb. Where there is a desert, drill a well. Where mountains are barren, plant a forest. Where people are forgotten and ignored, set them free, free through the power of the gospel. Where people are ignorant, build schools and libraries. Where the land is wasted, plant a garden. Where people are sick, develop a cure. Where there is silence, hear the music and play it. Man and woman is the discoverer, explorer, innovator, initiator, creator, and composer. See, we are... God could have, you know, made it so light miraculously shows up in the dark, but instead he, he, he brought, a, you know, Thomas Edison into the world. Earlier, Kennedy sang this wonderful song this, from this Broadway play that, that is a story of Genesis 1 through 9. I, I, it, I hope that you heard the words. She, she was Eve, really. She captured this. When I heard her do this at Broadway of Blessings a couple of weeks ago, I said, you've got to do this before week two of uh, my sermon series because I love the, 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 the way this is said. She, she sang about how there's this Eve. There's a spark of creation flickering within me. I, want to, I see a mountain and I want to climb it, a river and I want to leave shore. Where there is nothing, let there be something, something made by me. There's things waiting for me to invent them. There's things waiting for me to explore. I am an echo of the eternal cry. Let there be. 
We think all we want is a lifetime of leisure, each perfect day the same, endless vacation. Well, that's all right if you're a kind of crustacean, but when you're born with an imagination, sooner or later you're feeling the fire getting hotter and higher. It's the spark of creation. God invites us into his creative activity in the world. He says to each of us in our own way, come and help me make this world all I dream for it to be. Come and make this a better world. See, one of the things that I talked about last week is that how that God is a happy God, how that he exists in a state of happiness. I'm not going to go back into that, except to say that part of how we see God through a parable Jesus told is that this happy God invites us to share in his happiness. But that doesn't mean that he isn't disturbed by things that are happening in his world that are less than what he planned, less than what he wanted. When he sees a human being who is broken, when he sees someone living outside of relationship with him, when he sees a family that is damaged, when, when, when he sees someone impoverished, our God, though he exists in a state of happiness, is disturbed and he wants to take action to fix that thing. And see, then this should inform the way we think about what it means to be blessed. We exist in a state of fundamental happiness, but that doesn't mean that we are don't worry, be happy, casera, everything's fine kind of people. No, everything isn't fine. That's why some of you tomorrow in, in our Martin Luther King day of service, you're going to go out and join with God and his creative activity in this world, and you're going to touch someone or something that's broken or less than, and you're going to bring to them something from God because God invited you to get that job done done. He invited you to do it. Earlier in this message, I referred to the Epicureans and how their so-called gods were undisturbed and carefree. Here's what New Testament scholar N.T. Wright wrote about the Epicureans in this regard. He wrote, there were gods, small g, but they were distant and detached deities, uninvolved with the world, supremely happy with themselves. And the best thing a human could do was attempt a similar detachment from the cares of this life. The highest virtue was therefore undisturbedness, trying to imitate the gods in their happy and carefree state. But see, that's not the God, the one true God, the capital G God. God who we serve. He is happy at the same time he is disturbed. He is happy yet he sees the multitudes as Jesus did and he's moved with compassion. He sees something less than it could be and he's capable of shedding a tear like Jesus did. And so it is that we when we think about being blessed are not just don't worry, be happy, 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 happy people. We're happy people, yet at the same time, we look at the world around us and we engage to try to bring God's best to a broken world. Now, when we say yes to God's call, it might disturb our nice little lives. Adventures are wild, dangerous things and are full of risk and heart-pounding excitement. But as Tim Ferriss wrote, the opposite, the opposite of happiness is boredom. I promise you that if you say yes to whatever God calls you to, you will not be bored. Maybe God's calling you to start a new business, 
a God-honoring business. Maybe God's calling you to become a foster parent. Maybe God's calling you to step out in faith and sacrifice to serve in some ministry. Say yes to whatever he's calling you to, even if it disrupts your nice, comfortable life. Blessing is found in joining God in his great adventure. You know, we like to talk about the blessing of Abraham. We like to talk about it. We should talk about it. It's a major theme in Scripture. Next week, I'm going to talk about how to pass God's blessing to others, and we'll use Abraham and his family as an example in this. But there's a real key moment in human history and certainly in the life of Abraham when we're told in Genesis chapter 12 that God shows up. This is the God knocking on the door and calling Abraham to a great adventure moment. God shows up to Abraham and says, go from your country. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Another key line. So Abraham went, as the Lord told him. One of my favorite little passages of Scripture is from Genesis chapter 4 when Abraham's about to die, and the passage says that Abraham was blessed in every way. But see, being able to write that in the last paragraph of Abraham's story is all dependent on the first paragraph of Abraham's story where God shows up and says, here's what I want you to do, and you don't even know where I'm asking you to go, but I want you to say, yes, you'll go anyway. And if you'll do this with me, I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless the world through you. And then Abraham said, yes. And he went. And when God, you, know, you don't get the Abraham was blessed in every way at the end of his life because Abraham got up and said, no, nah, God, I don't really think I want to do that. Kind of mess my. I'm really comfortable here. And I mean, Abraham lived in a very sophisticated, desirable city, and he was going to some place that actually was less geographically uh, desirable than where he lived. I mean, this is totally the. You know, I'll preach a message like this around here, and inevitably somebody will show up three weeks from now in the lobby, shake my hand, and say, "Pastor, thank you for being my pastor for the last ten years." But you were doing that message the other day about going, and I believe God's called me to Hawaii. And I'm thinking, I don't think you got the point. For many of us in New Jersey, go means stay, right? It means stay here where it might be a little bit more challenging and let's do something great together to bring God's kingdom to a place that desperately needs it. They don't need you in Texas or Florida or, God forbid, North Carolina. They don't need you there. Each of us in our own way, I promise you, need to hear the voice of God calling us to his adventure. And for some of us, we prime the pump by saying yes to a simple thing. Yes, I'll lead a book club. Yes, I'll show up tomorrow and help rebuild that house. Yes, I'll. And for others of us, are at places where God's calling us to major shifts in our lives. We're all different kind of what that looks like. The bottom line is, I guarantee you God's calling you to be involved in what he's doing in this world. And that in order for you to live in his full blessing, you must say yes. And I need to move to my next point. Here's the second the second way to seize your, the purpose out of life, it's to fulfill your vocation. I'll hurry through this part. Fulfill your vocation. When I use the word vocation here, I'm using the technical theological term that refers to what your life 
is meant to be about. I'm not talking about your job. We can use that to talk about vocation. But our job, our career is one part of this, in theology, of this bigger idea of vocation. What is your life meant to be about? On one hand, we each have the same vocation. Every human being since Adam and Eve had the same vocation. In the beginning, God purposed humanity to do two primary things. First of all, to worship him, and secondly, to work with him. A lot of folks get the first part, but miss the second part. There's actually more said about the work God made Adam and Eve to do in the Genesis narrative than there is about the worship part. That doesn't mean that they both aren't equally important. It just means there's more said about the work part in the Genesis narrative than there is about the worship part. He created us to do something. But whereas we all have the same vocation in that sense, we all need then to find our specific role to play. We need to figure out what our role is in in all of this. John Walton, the uh, Genesis scholar, wrote, the word create in the original language had to do with bringing heaven and earth into existence, the assignment of roles and functions, and is connected to the fixing of destinies. In other words, when God created the world, part of what he did, because he wanted human beings to be partnered with him in his ongoing creative activity is he assigned everything and everyone a purpose. And fulfilling that purpose is directly connected to the fulfillment of our destiny. This is why we never really find that deep sense of satisfaction unless we're doing the thing that we were made to do. Each of us must discover our God-assigned role or roles in this world. You can. How Does what you do every day align with what God made you to do? How does it reflect worship? How does it reflect doing God's work? How is your business aligned with this? How are you raising your kids in a way that's aligned with this? How is the way you spend your time aligned with this? How are you expressing worship or making God first in your life and joining with him and doing his work in this world? You know, one of our big ideas around here is that we can, in fact, figure out what God made our life to be about. We talk a lot about this concept called area of destiny. I write about it briefly in The Lord Bless You, and if you're doing the daily readings, you'll see that this week. I write about it extensively in my last book, The Hospitable Leader. Area of destiny is, has to do with what our life is made to be about. And uh, we can figure that out. I think God wants us to know. I don't think God wants to keep us that a secret from us. And there are a couple of things that are really important about that. One is, uh, I, I love to refer to, I wish I had about an hour just for this text. You can be glad that I don't, but uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is this amazing passage where the Apostle Paul is talking about how that um, we can know, he talks about the glory that God destined for us the world before the world began. And then he, he says, this, this thing that God has destined for us is so great that human eyes can't see it, human ears can't hear it, and the human mind can, can't conceive it, the, the things that God has prepared for us. And then he 
immediately turns around and says, but God has revealed these things to us by his spirit. A lot of people quit, they, they pull little passages of scripture out and don't read the things in front of it and after them. And people hear this scripture about God, the things that God's prepared for us, no one can know what those things are. But, but the fact is, the next verse says, we can know what those things are by the Spirit. And then the next several verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 lets us know that through the activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can know the things that God has in his mind about our lives, those things th that God destined for our glory before the world began. I say all of that simply to say, God does not want to keep what he's planned for you a secret. He wants you to discover it, but you might need to try to do that. And the first and most important part of that is through your cultivation of your relationship with Jesus, his spirit will work in you and reveal to you the thoughts of God. Now, of course, those thoughts have to be in line with the thoughts of God revealed to us in Scripture. But the bottom line is you can go on a journey to figure out what's in God's mind for you about your life. And then... A good part of that process, as you're prayerfully approaching it, is to think about the subject of area of destiny. And we talk about area of destiny being the intersect, the intersect of mission, passion, and gifting. And so when we talk about mission, we're asking the question, what, what does God need me to do? What is my mission? When we talk about passion, we're saying, what causes you to come alive? What do you love to do? You know God isn't going to call you to do something that you don't ultimately love to do. I remember being a kid, and man, this is how I end up preaching too long because I add things in like this that I should just shut up. But I remember being a kid, and I was, I'd sit in church, and people preach about fulfilling God's call, and they made it sound so sad. It was terrifying. It was terrifying. What may God may call you to? I thought God's going to call me to be a, God's going to call me to be a missionary in outer Mongolia, and I don't want to go to outer Mongolia. Here's the fact. If God calls you to be a missionary in outer Mongolia, you know you're going to love more than anything in the world. You're going to love outer Mongolia. You're going to love being a missionary there. I I have a cousin who's a missionary in Calcutta, India. They live in a, in, in, in a village where well, I'm, I'm just a very, a very impoverished place. They think it's, a, they love it. They think it's a great, whatever it is, your area of destiny is a combination of mission, passion. What makes you come alive? And gifting. What did God gift you to do? Now, those gifts have to be turned into skills that allow you to make a, an indispensable contribution, but the intersect of those things. So I would encourage you, if you haven't already, and I've talked a lot about this around here, but if you haven't already, go on a quest to discover your area of destiny. God will help you know it and then take practical steps to learn as much about yourself and so on, the things you love, as possible. We've been waiting for a long time to roll out something very important, I believe, to the future of our church, and that's taking this concept and making it more practical. We're going to begin to offer probably twice a year a one-day Area of Destiny conference. And the first Area of Destiny conference is going to be on Saturday, March 25th. We're going to come together, have a lot of fun. I'll do a couple of teachings. Some other folks will do some teachings. And then we'll workshop some of these concepts in a way where you can walk away having a better sense of what God made your life to be about. Okay, I need to finish quickly now with, with the third way that we seize the purpose out of life. Everybody doing okay? 
Somebody said to me last week, listening to me preach is like drinking from a fire hose. I'm sorry. I don't know how else to do it, guys. A lot of stuff. All right. Here's the third thing. It's to accept the struggle. When you seize the purpose out of life, you will not avoid pain. I want, see, I think it's important to redefine, and this is part of what I'm trying to do in this book, what it means to be blessed. And I need to get into some of this, and maybe you'll get into some of this another time, but when you're going after purpose, you're going to face challenges. Now, you're going to, first of all, we all face challenges just because we live in a broken world. But the fact is, there's a lot of resistance that comes against us when we're trying to do good, and, and through doing good, we're attempting to overcome evil. And this is part of the reality, and we might as well just accept the fact that this is part of how it is and redefine our idea of what it means to be blessed from just get up every day trying to be happy, 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 to get up every day trying to do what God made us to do, knowing that when we are, we're going to be truly, deeply happy. There's a wonderful book written by Emily Esfahani Smith called The Power of Meaning, and she writes about how that one extensive study showed that living a meaningful life does not always bring immediate pleasure. She writes, having more meaning in life was correlated with activities like doing for others, taking care of children, and even arguing, which researchers said, interesting enough, was an indication of having convictions and ideals you are willing to fight for. Because these activities require investing in something bigger, the meaningful life was linked to higher levels of worrying, stress, and anxiety than the happy life. Having children, for instance, was a hallmark of the meaningful life, but it had been famously associated with lower levels of happiness, a finding that held true for the parents in the study. Do you get that point? Why would having children cause you to maybe feel sometimes less happy, 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 happy? Because children were created to disrupt your nice, quiet life. But any of us who have children on one hand would say that's true, and then we'd say there's nothing in the world that brings me more joy, and we know that overall, big picture life, it contributes to a deep sense of well-being that lasts from now into eternity. So, so it's the difference between this short-term euphoria of I feel good, I feel good. No one wakes up with a colicky baby saying, I'm happy, 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 happy. But over time, anyway, she goes on to say, research, though, has shown that meaningful endeavors can also give rise to a deeper form of well-being down the road. There was a study where college students were asked either to get up every day over a period of time to pursue meaning or to get up every day to pursue happiness. And after the study's uh, completion, they checked on this to see how it affected these, these kids' well-being. And what they found was that students who primarily pursued happiness experienced more positive feelings and fewer negatives, negative ones immediately after the study. But three months later, the mood had faded. The second groups of students, those who focused on meaning, did not feel as happy right after the experiment, though they did rate their lives as more meaningful. Yet three months later, the picture was different. The students who had pursued meaning said they felt more enriched, inspired, and part of something greater than myself. They also reported fewer negative moods. Over the long term, it seemed pursuing meaning actually boosted psychological health 
It simply goes to say that when you live life as it was meant to be lived, it doesn't always mean at every moment that life is going to be easy. But it does mean that you will be blessed. And when you are blessed over the long term of your life, you are in harmonious relationship with God who is doing good in you and to you and through you. And therefore, you can say, I am truly happy. So part of what we have to do then is we have to accept the struggle and we have to be willing to embrace the fight to do good in this world. I love, as I wrap this thing up here, I love the uh, story about Winston Churchill after the Second World War being at a dinner party and a woman asked him the question in front of everyone, now that it's all over, what was your worst moment of the war? And he thought for a moment and then he said, frankly, my dear, I enjoyed every moment of it. Now, he was saying he enjoyed the fight. Now, did he really, we know from history, in fact, that he didn't enjoy truly every moment of it. Did he enjoy sleeping on a cot underground while bombs fell in London? Did he enjoy the terrors of war, the loss of life, the, the threat to the world? Was he happy, happy, happy all along? No. What he was saying is, I look back in retrospect, and I'm glad I was a part of the fight. I'm glad I was, God was using me to shape history. I'm glad I was a part of the force of good that overcame evil, see? And in that way, I enjoyed every moment of the fight. Each of us must have some of that in us to where we do not define blessing by saying, you know, I feel really great in this moment. But we define blessing as I'm really doing something good here. And I know that God's blessing is with me. And that I am going to experience true happiness this is part of the mentality when Paul was when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, and again, I read it earlier, and he's dealing with this business of Epicureanism. I think I'm going to do some teaching on Christian Epicureans, Christians who just want to live nice little comfortable lives and not be disturbed. Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and he's saying, you know, if Jesus hadn't been raised, then I wouldn't be needing to work so hard to preach the gospel and facing so many difficulties. It's, if Jesus hadn't been raised, well, then I could just live a nice, comfortable life. Here's what he said, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. If I fought wild beast people opposing him in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. To which I say, if God isn't who Scripture says he is, if Jesus didn't do what Scripture says he did, if the gospel wasn't real, if Jesus didn't change people's lives, if God wasn't at work redeeming a broken, broken planet and taking us into the age to come where we live at our purpose, then we could just live nice little quiet lives. But in fact, there's a lot at stake here. And for us to be blessed, we've got to be involved in what God's doing in the world, and each of us must find our place in that. Would you please stand with me?